Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussions, news, and interviews presenting the film scene with Ileana Douglas. Ileana is an actress, writer, author, and film historian with a need to discuss movies that borders on obsession. You'll learn the history of movies one great story at a time. The film scene is the deep cuts of movie podcasts featuring movies we love by the people who made them. And now, Ileana Douglas. Hello, everyone. Here we are. Welcome to the film scene. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, my co-host, Jeff Graham. Jeff was a producer of our show, and I must say, usually we would end the show and continue the discussion yes. over uh, homemade peanut butter or guacamole outside. Yes, I, I weaseled my way onto the show. I was yes. producing it for a while, and uh, Ileana and I are really excited to come back. If you are a fan of the Dennis Hopper podcast, yes. this is a continuation of the show. Think of it as a revitalization of what we already had. So we're super excited to be back. It's what you already love, plus more. But we just just wanted to uh, take the show in a new direction, and uh, we've got such a backlog, obviously, of great guests that people can always go to the site and uh, re-listen to the shows that we have, but we want to start doing more things that are, I don't know, just more personally fun for me, top Mm -hmm. 10 lists and deep cuts, and uh, have returning guests to do, uh, you know, talk more about their career, maybe one film or more current movies, all, all of the above. And uh, even going around the country, which is something I've been doing. A, one of, a couple of things I've been doing lately, a lot of commentary on films mm-hmm. and also traveling around the country. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, we have, obviously, you're an amazing interviewer, but you're also this you. brilliant film scholar. So what we want to do is design the show to not only include interviews, but top 10 lists, like you right. mentioned, career retrospectives of directors that we love. Um, we're sort of planning our schedule right now around the holidays yes. so we just are really excited about the potential of this relaunch and again we have the backlog of episodes to listen to but we yes. have so many more in store for you guys and uh the last thing i want to add is uh is just including the fans more mm-hmm. because i'm such a film fan like i'm a fanatic you could you know stop me on the street and always get me with talking about some obscure film so i love including the fans more and incorporating uh you know some of their thoughts about uh subjects they'd like to hear movies they'd like to hear more of i'm totally um up for that so a couple things this week um we were inspired to do a top 10 list of uh, Hollywood films because of the fantastic movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I thought that Paul Seda would be a fantastic guest as the writer of uh, Sandy Wexler, mm-hmm. which I feel like is a little bit of a gem of a film that not too many people uh, know about. And uh, I'll tell a little story about when I'm on the air, but I actually had never seen the movie until this weekend. I was blown away. I, lo- I love this film it almost made my top 10 list that's how that's how good it is and the other thing i want to say just with our reboot which is so interesting the the last show which was called i blame dennis hopper and here we are uh i just want to talk a little bit about peter fonda who passed away Mm. played a major role um you know in my life obviously with the film easy rider but i was lucky enough he was cast on a film i did called grace of my heart and he was so gracious that he showed up to do the movie we had a last minute cancellation um mick fleetwood actually was supposed to be in the movie at the he couldn't but bridget fonda was in the film and she asked her dad if he would come by and he came by and said to play my guru in the film and unfortunately
unfortunately, the scene was later cut, which is too bad. You can blame Martin Scorsese for that, for <laughs> our producer. Uh, but he, he, he didn't like the scene. But we loved it. We thought it was great. And... Um, when Allison was thanking him when we were done shooting, he said, "Oh, no problem. I always, uh, you know, I'll always, I'm always up for free food." And he said, "No, we thought he was kidding." And he said, "No, I'm serious." He goes, "The whole time I'm in L.A., if ever I see a movie set, I just pull up and I grab a tray <laughs> and I stand in line, and people say, oh, my God, I didn't know Peter Fonda was in this movie,' and he gets his his free food." But just I looking think, for crafty, yeah. But he had that kind of attitude. Just uh, so much fun, so humble. And I think that, um, you know, what Peter Fonda represented, I used to see him all the time at some of these Academy luncheons. And he just was one of those touchstones in Hollywood that they really, and I said this before on Twitter. You know, Easy Rider for me. Although there were there are lots of forerunners, and this is what's fun about the show. Mm-hmm. I love when people argue with me. <laughs> but for me, Easy Rider is really independent film. Begins with Easy Rider it was made for about four hundred thousand yeah. dollars. It made sixty million in the original. You know, release went on to win all sorts of Academy Awards, and you could talk about John Cassavetes being a, a forerunner obviously of independent film there's many other people Shirley Clark all sorts of people were making independent films Andy Warhol but I for me Easy Rider is basically was an independent film that became a studio film yeah. that became a model you know for giving uh, the keys to the kingdom to people like Spielberg and Corman and uh, De Palma and Marty and and the rest. Yeah, I think what Easy Rider did with music, too, is like so hugely influential. When you look at, especially with indies, I feel like so often music is sort of the lifeblood of what makes a great indie film. And Easy Rider, I agree, is such an important precedent for like establishing that, I think. And other great films that he's been in, a lot of people have talked about The Hired Hand. Mm. Uh, One of his early films, which I really like, is called Lilith. I've never seen that. Uh, I need to. Yeah, that's a that's a very good film, and uh, everyone uh, I think also references the Limey. Mm. He's incredible. I think uh, of the Three Ten to Yuma remake. That's funny. That's my yes. reference because that was oh, a, actually a great remake. Yeah, I like both, but he was so good in that movie, and that just the Fonda family in general. You know, like you mentioned, just such an important component to the DNA of Hollywood. You I know? think so. Yeah. I, th- I think so. And he was, you know, Captain America in that movie, and. Uh, I don't know. It's just a touchstone for me. And it was so amazing to see all the references uh, for him in terms of what he contributed to cinema. But, you know, he represented it as that movie represented freedom, artistic freedom, independent film freedom. Mm. And so I think to that, we'll all, you know, we will always uh, owe him a, a debt to uh, grat- grat- gratitude. So, God we bless do you, have, Peter. Uh, some people watching along too who sure, are absolutely. loving Peter. We have Sandwich in here saying, "R.I.P. Peter Fonda. You are a legend in Hollywood." Also saying, "Ileana looks lovely and green today." So, oh, well, thank you. If you guys are uh, listening on the podcast, we do want to <laughs> let you know that we go live on Thursdays at three p.m. and you can yeah. tune in and join the conversation with us. Yeah, please um, do. So, right now we have Frank Wells and Sandwich and a bunch of people in the chat. So, thanks for joining in. And when Paul is on air later in the show, ask some questions and we'll send them. Oh his way. my God. Okay, we're. We're going to bring Paul in a second, and uh, we're going to be talking about the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. First reaction. I loved it. Me too. 
I love Tarantino, and like you mentioned, you have to get on board with the fact that he's going to play by his own rules. Yes. Uh, but there's something about Tarantino, too, where even though he's bending the rules and, again, establishing his own voice, he makes very likable, mainstream-feeling movies. You yeah. know, he kind of makes these populist movies with indie undertones. It's a really interesting mix. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... If you ever want to talk about a director being passionate and rendering that passion on screen, that's what that movie does. It's such a love letter. I think so, too. And it was inspiring for me and, and just to do the kind of movie that is in your heart and not don't listen to other people. Mm. And that's when I saw that movie, you know, like Jerry Lewis used to always say he had a love affair with emulsion. Mm-hmm. And I think that. Tarantino has that same you feel the love from that from that film and every performance I think is is just incredible um Okay, I want to bring. I'm so excited. I go. I want to bring Paul in because yes. I'm dying to. So many movies that didn't uh, make my list, but that people wrote to me on Twitter. So let's bring in Paul because I'm so excited about this screenwriter uh, and director. Paul Sato was born in Brooklyn, but he was raised in Queens. That's our first tie-in. I spent a lot of time in Queens when I was a kid. He began his career as an actor. He appeared alongside Kevin Hart. Uh, he co-wrote, produced, and starred in his first movie. As I said, it was a it was a privilege to watch all his movies this weekend. I could not find the undeserved. Whoever is distributing that movie, get it out there. And uh, he consulted on Tom McCarthy's movie Win Win, starring Paul uh, Giamatti. And he co-wrote. Listen to this: The Cobbler, starring Adam Sandler, Dustin Hoffman, and Steve Buscemi. Co-producer, fantastic special on Adam Sandler's 100% Fresh, and co- uh, co-wrote that with Dan Beulah, and a co-producer screenplay of Sandy Wexler, also acted in it, we're going to get to that, and co-producer of The Do-Over, uh, which is the Adam and uh, David Spade movie, and an associate producer, didn't make the cut, I guess, for the uh, for the acting of Ridiculous Six, <laughs> which I also loved. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Sato, thanks so much. Hey, 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 hey. Paul, thanks so much for doing this. Yes, I can hear you. Okay, well, thanks for being on the show, first off. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Now, what did you you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I I really loved it. it, To me, it was such a joy uh, just to to have two things going at the same time. One, Mm -hmm. it was this very sort of, like you said, independent spirit and very... uh, there was all this youthful kind of energy and a, a, a guy just breaking all the rules, doing whatever he wants. But uh, simultaneously, he's a master. Yes. Storyteller. So it's like reading. It, it almost reminds me of like those late period John Huston movies or those late period Coppola movies mm-hmm. where they just kind of start making these weirdo movies where they're doing <laughs> whatever they want to do, but they can't not be masters of their craft. Do you know what I mean? I felt the same way even about Brad Pitt. You know, I mean, just as an actor myself, he was so confident to lay back and play play the bass while, you know, DiCaprio, because it's so tempting, you know, when you're an actor and you're in a scene, you see people, they're going all over the place and you kind of want to match them and it's hard to, you got to do your own thing, you know play the bass line yeah, you're right. there, there was kind of like a like a jazz combo uh aspect to it no it wasn't leo versus brad two guys trying to win the scene they were right, really exactly 
each other and yeah it was really uh and, and you know it it's it's a really beautiful perspective on the history of of hollywood and what's poetic about it and what's romantic about it and also what's real about it without getting terribly dark uh i, I was really moved by his um by the way he sort of wove together fantasy, his fantasy with sort of the edges of, you know, what we know to be the reality of that town. I don't know. I right. just thought it was really gorgeous. Yeah, I love, and you know, and I think you remember what I was saying, it just sort of revitalized you, my love of making movies, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the, the idea that there's spoilers in it and we're all playing along and we're not talking about the, you know, I love that. It's like, that's sort of the fun of going yeah. to see the movies, you know, uh, that it, we, you know, gives us something all to talk about. I was going to ask you, do you, what do you remember your first experience coming to Hollywood and what was that like? And yeah, because I, I, you know, I was in New York, uh, for a very long time. So, I, I mean, my first time, my first trip out, I was, I had written a movie for, it was one of my first kind of sort of bootleg screenwriting jobs. I got paid like $2,000 to write this script uh, back when rappers were getting a lot of money um, <laughs> to make these movies. So I got like some weird like backdoor cash to write a movie for uh, the group Mob Deep. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. My idea was like, oh, we're going to make like a Richard Lester movie with rappers in it um, <laughs> you know, or like uh, Blake Edwards. I wanted to make like the, the, the great race, the amazing race. With, yeah. Uh, you know, those guys. But but I ended up coming out to like L.A. and staying at the Highland Franklin Suites and shooting in the L.A. River and not getting paid. And it was, you know, that was my first real experience in L.A., um, which was really uh i was young and excited to be there and then i didn't move out there um, i'm in new york right now but i live in la and i didn't i hadn't i didn't move out there until about five six years ago mm-hmm. yeah that sounds uh, like my experience too yeah the uh, i was yeah. at i was at the oakwood apartments. oh classic uh, yeah that was the you know the other thing is i don't know if you ever had this experience but you know i they would fly in back when show business was fun and there was lots of money <laughs> they would fly you out for pilot like the three and the three you'd be up against two other people and they'd be on the plane with you <laughs> scoping each other out and we'd all check into the universal yes uh, and, sheridan and you probably stayed who the the, were the two that you used to uh, go up against all the time oh god uh, I'm trying to think. There was, uh, it was usually like the, you know, I was in the Joan Cusack, Marissa Tomei mm-hmm. kind of vein. But one time there was a pilot and it was called Supergirl. And it was like two blonde girls. And I was clearly, the, I was clearly the wacky. I was the wacky choice. <laughs> I was the wacky choice a, a, a lot of times, you know. You, uh, you know, and, and one of the weird sort of totems of Sandy Wexler, not to jump the gun, but you did like for me, the there, there's five minutes of television that you did that I think is the definitive comment on Hollywood. And it's 
that bit at the end of the Larry Sanders show oh, where thank you yeah where he, he's you're dating him he's coaching you to do your shot on his show yeah you do the shot and then it's that scene where you tell him if I hadn't done so well I don't think that you would like me anymore and he says you know I'm all fucked up or I don't know what yeah that's what he says that. yeah but yeah. um but then the turn of you then hugging him and then saying but was I good and <laughs> That that the, all those layers and it's about four and a half minutes and to me it's like that's the the sort of purity you know injected into all the other weird psychological stuff that brings us out there um, you know the curse of having talent or whatever it is it's, yeah. I don't know, it's just, there's so much in that moment that to me is like you know. Yeah, that was an interesting, uh, that whole experience, obviously, working with Gary Shandling was life-changing, and um, that was the first time that they, you know, they I sat with Gary, and he said, just tell me every funny thing that ever happened to you, hmm. and we just sat for like two days, and that's the first time, I mean, you're an actor who became a writer, I just was one of those people like, wait a minute, I'm... I just think I'm funny, and I ad lib every now and then. But he he was like, "No, you're you're a writer. You should mm. write. You should do more things." And he really gave me confidence in terms of all those scenes, you know, because a lot of it right. was improved. But you, must- yeah, that's in particular the because there's all those you you want to be very organic and real within the context of the scene, but there's those specific beats you had to hit of like, I feel. Like there's a phoniness here. Okay, now that we've solved that, I now I need the validation that you were giving me before. And right. Once you get that, then he's satiated. Now he needs the validation from you. <laughs> and you come to such a it's, it's a math to it. So it needs to be precise, but also jangly, and uh, it's great. I yes, I've certainly uh, lived that scene too. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah. of, uh, in, in in certain certain relationships, but we'll get to that on the next. It's only the first episode. Yes, we'll save that. So, Paul, I want to run down. These are some of the movies that didn't make my list that I just from you know fans that you know shouted out on Twitter. Rules mm-hmm. rules don't apply, which was mm-hmm. the Warren Beatty movie. The, I loved it. Really loved it. Yeah, the big picture. Uh, a lot of people, this Kevin Bacon uh, movie, Michael yep. McKeon is in this. Last of Sheila, that mm. came from Michael McKeon himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, in- count, they're all on a boat, right? Yeah, I know. Well, this is, we're, we're, we're gonna, everybody's got their own, you know, that's what I love about Top Ten. It's so subjective, mm-hmm. you know. Right. You can argue it out. Insight don't apply. Yeah. In- <laughs> uh, Day of the Locust, that was too dark for me. Yeah, not my favorite. Uh, Inside Daisy Clover. Okay, here's a good one. I bet you've never heard of this. There's only two people in the world who are obsessed with this movie. One of them is named Martin Scorsese. It's The Legend of Lila Claire. The other one is my friend Peter Avellino. And uh, we always fight about it. I think it's one of the worst movies ever made. (laughs) Being in a relationship with Marty, he's like, no, maybe if I show it to you one more time, you'll understand. (laughs) It's a great movie. It's Robert Aldrich, Kim Novak. Mm. Um, that's another thing too, Paul. Like, is there a certain aspect of Hollywood movies? Like, there's some that are so that are like you love to hate. All the mm. worst good bad movies seem to be about right. Hollywood. 
Well, there's for me <laughs> when I was trying to make my list, it was like I, I kind of wanted to keep it on the pro not con side of yes, things. Yes, me too. Like, me too. I love Straight Time and Barfly and mm. Killer of Sheep. You know, I mean, I love the movies that depict like the out like the the outliers of Los Angeles and what happens to people, you know, in a town like that who who aren't going to become, you know, Rick Dalton or, yeah. or even Rick Dalton, you know, after the fall, but, you know, like Eddie Bunker in Straight Time is just trying to make it happen out there in the valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I, I love movies like that. Um, but I, I tried to keep my list in the realm of, uh, for the most part, in the realm of, uh, you know, pro this sort of, um, you know, poetic and fantastical life we get to participate in. Um, you know, as people in showbiz. I agree. And it was funny when I was doing the list, What it, it made me realize how many times, because I love movies about show business, and how many times have you as a writer, I know it's happened to me, Have you, how many times have you pitched things and they go, yeah, it's a little bit too inside baseball. People don't mm-hmm. like movies about show business. Here's how many, <laughs> like, wow. it's, it's like endless. There's, I, what I was doing, I was like, okay, there's endlessly, there's more movies about show business than there are about baseball. Yeah, it's it, true. Honestly, like, at any time I pitch anything and I get a definitive, and I get anything definitive that isn't a yes, uh-huh. I, I then immediately see something way to the extreme. You know, like, a, I'll pitch something and they go, well, that's too dark, and then I'll go home and it's, there's, like, a dead baby on Law & Order or something. <laughs> like, I didn't have a dead baby in it. I mean, this thing is on ABC at prime time. Like, you know, like they always, you know, it's, it's, everybody should just say yes or shut up or it's kind of how I feel about it. <laughs> well, that leads me a little bit to Sandy Wexler. Was that something mm-hmm. that came from, from your wheelhouse or Adam's? I was so impressed with this movie and I have to say I was I, kind of surprised that it's not more well-known or is it well-known and I'm just too busy it, watching it, it, other it things. It definitely was sort of elevated critically out of the the sort of muck of what Adam's movies usually, you know, get filed under. Right. Uh, you know, I think the press has a problem with him just in terms of like he succeeds uh, despite them. Right. You know what I mean? So I think that that's a, that's, so they just, they're, they're, they're not his friend, but um, Adam and I were kind of talking about, well, you know, Adam's manager is Sandy Wernick uh, at Brillstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sandy Wernick is one of the sort of OG managers. He was Bernie Brillstein's kind of protege, and he did all the deals on, the, you know, at the beginning of Saturday Night Live and the Muppets and did the, did that huge deal on Friends. I mean, he's kind of that guy. Uh-huh. Uh, and he represent Evil Knievel. He's just... <laughs> And he kind of talks like this. I mean, this is sort of how Sandy talks. And he always, you know, I thought you said you were going to be there. If I, it's just, he's, <laughs> that's all kind of from him. And we were talking about what what could we do with a character like that. And then, you know, I had just come out to uh, to L.A. And, you know, my experience out there was very, it, it was kind of like, this is the big show, you know what I mean? And 
as cynical as you might want to be about it, it, it really is people just exerting everything they have spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically, financially to attain this kind of indescribable thing, you mm-hmm. know, uh, that they hope will validate them or, or elevate them or, or whatever it is. And so it became, okay, well, can we tell an aspirational story about kind of a lovable, you know, quote unquote loser who, who, who doesn't have talent of his own. His talent is facilitating talent, but his eye is toward like authenticity, not necessarily stardom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then my thought was, well, and then could we set it in the nineties so that we don't owe all this 21st century, uh, you know, uh, weirdness. That was a great touch. you know. That was a great touch. So you could have little things about not using the computer. That's a running gag right. in the movie. It's just like, why would you want to send an email? Oh, it's great. It's great. <laughs> and also, you know, Adam uh, in the 90s, that was his real like rock star moment. And so it was cool to be able to sit with him and just get all the stories and, and, and hear about like, you know, the Moustache Cafe and what the improv was like back then and you right. know, and, and discover what was really important to him. I mean, you were, you, you know, like, you... I had Rob you, Sh- Schneider on the show. We were saying we're, the 90s is now a film category. Mm-hmm. It, like, it happened like that, yeah. you know? It's crazy. And, uh, yeah, the 90s was fun, you know? It was a good yeah, time. It's so strange that the, that the music and the movies, it's, you know, it's... Uh, it's it's sort of like uh, it, you know reality bites. You guys might want to run it on TCM soon. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, the other thing that I was going to say in, in in terms of Adam that I don't think anybody ever notices, and I was going to ask you, is there a parallel? Because I see a parallel very much to Jerry Lewis, mm-hmm. to a kind you of know, pathos. Yeah, he, he. First of all, I think he's as good. Um, and uh, I think they're probably similar people. You know, Adam is a guy who, uh, you know, who, who really functions best when he's working. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So he works all the time. Um, and if you want to know who he is, you look at his work. Um, and I think, yeah, he's got this ability to, like, break your heart and make you laugh at stuff that you, you yourself wouldn't want to say out loud. You know, and and he's a great absurdist clown, and he's also great. You know, he can deliver a subtle joke. I mean, you know, and because the nature of who he is in the business, he he gets to produce these things, especially with Netflix. So, so the movies become personal as well because he's he doesn't you know owe all this. Uh, he doesn't have to do notes. So he doesn't have to do copious notes and really like work under the iron fist of a studio, you know? You know, in that way, that's why I say, like, that's why it sort of reminded me of somebody like Jerry Lewis, Mm -hmm. who, like, again, critics did not really like Jerry Lewis, but you look at Mm -hmm. the movies and you're like, there's always two or three, like, really, really funny things. And, again, I I was saying to Jeff before we went on the air, somebody like, I really admire Adam Sandler, who works within the studio system, 
And you could say that he is an auteur because he makes his own movies. Mm-hmm. He puts all, he puts all of his regulars in there. They do extraordinarily funny things. I mean, like Harvey Keitel in The Ridiculous Six. It blew me away. It was so stupid and funny. <laughs> I I was I, I you know I, when I came out I had I was I was writing Sandy around the time of The Ridiculous Six, and Netflix had originally passed on it because they thought it was going to be too sad. And Adam said to me, he said, you know, and I, and I had like a deal, you know what I mean? And then yeah. the deal like went away. So Adam said, you, you know, if you want to um, keep writing it, you certainly don't have to. But if you want to keep writing it, I'll get it made. Just, you know, let's let's get it going. And, and, and then three years later, we were able to do that. But I came down to, to Santa Fe to work on Ridiculous Six uh, and I'm. Um, Working with Harvey Keitel, kind of feeding him jokes, and oh my god! Was- All right, stop right there. <laughs> what were you into? Were you? I mean, because he's, you know, he's funny. He is funny, and I think he looked. One of the things was again another great thing about Adam Sandler movies. People just look like they're having mm. a blast, and Harvey Keitel looks so happy. But I can imagine a guy meeting Car- Harvey Keitel and pitching him jokes. A little scary? <laughs> well, so I'm from New York and like the independent film world. I, I worked with Abel Ferrara. I, I was good friends with Victor Argo. So I saw Harvey do his eulogy at Vic's oh. you know, memorial. So I I come from that world. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I, I know all the, the stuff that comes with a guy like Harvey. So I had a choice, right? Either to kind of tiptoe around him or just to be like, we're on a clock. I'm supposed to make you funny. Like, <laughs> what's going on? So, <laughs> you don't know who I am. I'm in the movie, so I'm dressed like a dirty cowboy. <laughs> Literally, I could be like an extra. I'm going like, I got something. But uh, there was one thing where he was saying, ball, like, you don't have the balls to come over to me. And I said, I think it's funnier if you say huevos. I think it'll just be funnier the way his voices i was yeah. like if you just go, you know yeah you don't have the huevos <laughs> so uh but he couldn't say huevos and like it's one of those moments where i you know i'm an important part of the production but i'm not i'm certainly not the most important part of the production and now my single word joke is like we're going like 19 takes oh. <laughs> <laughs> this man cannot say huevos correctly <laughs> And he's going like, you don't have the quap. What is it? <laughs> the, okay, you don't have the quap. The quap. I don't know what it is. And oh it's god! Like, but eventually he said it, and it's in the movie, and it's hilarious. But he was—I mean, that that scene is one of my favorites. And when he gets the, the, the severed head, and it's just—it's crazy. You, know, only in a family, you get to do something that high. I mean, it's real Jerry Lewis. Oh. Like Jacques, Jacques Tati, like real physical, poetic comedy, you know? Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to switch back to, uh, Sandy Wexler, um, Kevin James almost steals the movie with... Uh, so t- talk a little bit about that character. That blew me away. One of the, It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie, and I called up like three people and said, you have to see this thing. And you know what's great is some people go, really? And I'm like, no, I'm serious. You have to see this movie. It's oh, really going to, you're really going to be shocked because it's this slow uh, thing that you, that builds up to, and Kevin James, you, you can say he's, a, he's like a, a ventriloquist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, he, 
He's a ventriloquist who has a codependent relationship with his puppets. So he's very <laughs> sweet and self-deprecating and he can't really, uh, he has no agency. He can't really uh, assert himself, but his puppets are very aggressive. And <laughs> no problem expressing, uh, you know, their rage. And, and he takes them wherever he goes. Uh, he's kind of like a like a Marty character, you know. He wears a, a white beater T-shirt at home and gets cereal on his face. And the the scene where Adam has the stroke and ends up having Kevin ends up having to puppet Adam <laughs> to get through the meeting. That was one of the first scenes I had. Uh, it's brilliant. It, it's I mean, it's up there with any great Jerry Lewis. It, it's like I was in okay. astonishment. I love the way it was shot. I mean, because again, shoot, you know, comedy is, it's not only the way you write it, it's the way you shoot it mm-hmm. and the way you cut it. I mean, yeah. So, well, Brill, Brill did a really good job, especially since, you know, he was also a, an LA 90s guy. And so he had a really great sensibility. And Adam, in terms of like, a comedian, he knows, you know, he, he, he's not Eddie Murphy. He doesn't just give it up to the director. I mean, he understands the way jokes need to be played. And, you know, and, he, and we're on the set with him. So we're always like, you know, we're, all, we're always collaborating to try to figure out what the best way to play the joke is. And, you know, so when you have a guy like that who's like a 25-year veteran and has made probably more movies than I'll ever make, um you know, two a year since he's like 22 or something. Uh, you know, he really he really has a good sense of, you know, how to block a, a physical comedy scene. Yeah, mm. the brilliance of that scene is they have to... It, Adam has had a, a stroke or a heart attack, and Kevin James finally has this big shot in front of Rob Reiner to get to do a television show. And so he, you know, Sandler can't talk, so he... He uses him as a puppet, and the, but the way it's shot, at this there's a long table, and Rob Reiner is at one end of the table, and they're at the other end, and it just keeps building to the point that you just you you know what I love about his movies too. It's sort of like you go, I'm not going to like this. This is not going to be funny. I get the joke, and then you're like, oh my god, that is really is really funny, but it's brilliantly staged. It's so true. Yeah. And the thing I love, Paul, about, I mean, even what we're describing right now, in some ways, is such a classic and pure distillation of comedy. It feels like your films and Adam's film have such a particular commitment to pure, unencumbered comedy. And I feel like that's not as common as it was even in the 90s or like we talk about, you know, the Marx Brothers. And it just feels like I'm, I'm so grateful that there still is this movement in film to try to produce pure studio comedy films. Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, my, my, um, my voice. I tend to like to make you laugh and cry. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I like to. Uh, I, I love the old. So I like Marty, and I, and I like sort of the uh, uh, that that sort of old uh, Hollywood, and, and also kind of like you know Preston Sturges. I, mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of a little bit of a, a little bit of magic in a movie. And that it's going to give you a little bit of hope, maybe that or, or catharsis, maybe that you didn't have when you 
walked in. Uh, I, I think, though, I like I like big, so I want you to laugh big and cry big. And uh, it, when you're dealing with somebody like Adam, you know he can play, he can play both those levels uh, probably better than than anybody. There's not a lot of people out there that can do it. Um, and yeah, you're right. There's no like, uh, there really aren't too many just balls out. No, because there's. Um, you know, when you think of like Mel Brooks in his mm-hmm. prime, you know, and every when I was a kid, and every year, you, you know, you get your Mel Brooks movie. But I, as yeah. I was watching the movie, and as I was later again talking to people, I said, "I promise you will laugh. Like you will watch this thing, and it's really funny." Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's made by people that understand uh, that even the you know when when Adam has his heart attack, which is not necessarily you know you go why is the heart attack funny you know it's just funny it's like certain things are funny, and him having a heart attack before a big pitch you know is <laughs> well, the, the funny. Way he delivers that line too when Kevin says to him, uh, uh, but, but uh, Sandy, you can't talk, and Adam goes, but you can. <laughs> it's just the greatest. <laughs> Like, it, it does. Delivery. Well, it has, again, it's yeah. got all those, uh, you know, uh, ideas of Hollywood, too, mm-hmm. that work. So right. one of the things I was going to ask you, because, again, you were saying about, you know, critics not necessarily liking the movies. And I think I'm pretty smart and could sort of sometimes figure out why people may like things. And I have to say, like, I, I'm, I was sort of I don't really understand the critics. Mm hmm not liking the films they're funny they're just funny movies and yeah what i applaud is that they're actually well shot i think a lot of the current crop of younger comedians make movies and they don't look very good Hmm. they just look crappy whereas adam's movies have a certain artfulness craft about them and sandy wexler again we're going to go in when we get to do our top 10 tons of great Iconic locations yep. in LA and beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we had like seventy-seven locations or something. Uh, y- y- you know, yeah, like I, I like I love Judd's movies, but they're more joke based. So it's a lot of like shot, reverse shot, people standing on marks and just getting alts thrown at them and joke, yeah. joke, joke. And I think you know, Adam uh, McKay likes. To oh, tell Sam, a story at, at at a you know at at a scale, you know that requires real you know visual storytelling. So so you're able to get something that's a little bit more you know cinematic. We screened the the premiere we had at the Cinerama Dome. It was unbelievable. Yes, I have a little confession about that. On the day of the premiere, I was across the street at Turner Classic Movies had their. Okay little tiny piddly thing <laughs> i was like i remember i was driving the car i was like wow tcr is like really putting on the dog this, oh that's not our that's another, <laughs> that's the adam sandler movie and so i was on the red i was working on the red carpet and quincy jones true story literally walked across the street and walked the wrong red carpet he walked <laughs> Hilarious. He walked our red carpet. I introduced him, and I and and he was like, "What? what? Oh, I'm in the wrong. I was supposed to be across the street." Scene in uh, in Modern Romance where he goes to the wrong set. Yes. <laughs> so, 
he goes across the way, and I'm friends with a comedian named uh, Wayne Fetterman. You may you know Wayne. Yeah. He's in the movie. So Wayne, I never call him Wayne. It's the first time I ever called him that. Oh, Fetterman. you call him Fetterman? <laughs> yeah. um, well, Fetterman and I are very close friends, and uh, uh, he is always my go-to, you know, to go to the Turner Classic Movies. And he gave me a caveat. He said, I will go with you to the Turner Classic Movies, but you have to do me one favor. You have to go with me to the Sandy Wexler premiere. It's right, right. It's right across the street. So... I was like, all right, what's the harm? You know, just walk across right. the street, right? So we, so he did. He literally, he did. He did the Quincy Jones in reverse. He went over there. He came back to us. The the you know the he's looking at his watch the whole time he's with me. Right. Halfway through the movie, you know, whatever we're watching, I think it was like, you know, Sound of Music. And uh, he's like, okay, we got to go. The movie's over, you know. So I just go, well, what's the harm? First of all, the party was insane. You had this, I mean, what is, it's like unbelievable. It was this huge party. And I went there and I was at the party and I was like, you know, what's the harm? It's free food, like Peter Fonda. Oh, yeah. The first thing that happens is that Adam Sandler walks up to me and he goes, oh, hey, hey. Now, I there's a whole Rob Schneider connection. I met him many years ago on Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live. But he goes, so what would you think of the movie? And I was like, oh, my God. My, and I said, it was, oh, it was great. I mean, I literally had no. And he looked at me like, you, did, you didn't like the movie. Because like I, I, normally I would have given all these details. Right. So I, I'm fessing up. I did not see the movie that night. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, just, Paul, it's your job to report how much you did the like, right thing. That's, that's the move. There's no, you know how it, it's like when somebody asks you how you're doing on the street? <sighs> you know? Nobody wants to know how you're doing. You just go, great, and you keep moving. It's the same thing. <laughs> yes, like really? Go, congratulations. Congratulations. And then you just keep moving. <laughs> you know, J- Jeff Goldblum always says he, his go-to is, oh, it's genius. Genius. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You always... Okay, let's get to our top ten list. And uh, I'm right. still... I want to do... We're, we're all going to do our... I'm going to start with our number 10, my number 10. It was so, so tough to, to make all these changes. But we're going to go, uh, we're, I'm going to start with my number 10, as opposed to my number one. My number 10, I chose, is a film called Model Shop. Mm. I uh, recently did a commentary mm. for it. This is from 1967 by uh, Jacques Demy. And the reason I picked it is that it's it's filmed by a foreigner, and this is basically mm-hmm. his love affair with with Los Angeles. This is also a big influence in the film Once Upon a Time in, uh, in Hollywood. And as you know, go, going to L.A., you know you can lose yourself in L.A. Good and bad. Mm-hmm. I think when you first come yeah. here, you're like. Where's the? I mean, I don't know how we did it with the Thomas Guide, like back in speaking of the nineties. Right. But you know, you're you're driving, you're on the freeways, and and it it has that aspect, and then it also has the inability to make a human connection, which the movie is very much about. A lonely guy, he's been drafted into the Vietnam War. He fall, finds a woman, falls in love with her, and basically follows her like up Sunset Drive, mm. down Sunset, and it's a beautiful looking film, uh, yeah. and that's why that became my number my number ten. When I listen back to this podcast, I'll have that experience about my voice. 
<laughs> no, no, not at all. What? So, uh, what's your number four? Uh, wait, did I do five? Am I? Is, is my? Is that when I when I lopped off? Oh, I'm sorry. You're number five. Apologies. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, my number five is Sullivan's Travels. Mm. Ooh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheat. I'm getting ve- that. Might be my next one. This so is perfect. Go ahead. So this is perfect. We're on the same. Go ahead. My favorite movie. I mean, Preston Surges is obviously yeah. God. Um, you know the it, it it's it, not only just the overarching theme of it, which is that you know comedy heals. You you don't have to you know be. Uh, a, a, a you know Maisel's brother to uh, you know affect change in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but 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 just the the pace, the jokes, the way the the way that Preston Sturges stages uh, dialogue scenes. It, it's uh, I mean the the charm of L.A. at that time, the way that. Hollywood at that time, right, was sort of built by these immigrant Jews. Yeah. Uh, and and everybody was still kind of from the street a little bit. You know, there, there was a, a toughness about it because there weren't that many generations of stars at that point. Right. So every, many people had come from either like a shtetl or, or a similar kind of neighborhood in New York. Then you had all these people coming out from the Midwest. But everybody kind of had this edge that I think... Preston Sturges captures so beautifully with all the characters in that truck that are following him, the studio heads, <laughs> mm-hmm. Veronica Lake, and how Joel McRae is really the one who's just gotten so soft from being so successful. But there's all these kind, these kind of edgy, uh, you know, smart-mouthed, you know, v- very witty characters around him. It's just such a cool time to be in the movie business that, that I think is just depicted so elegantly. Yeah. yeah. I also think it's such a great movie about a director. Mm. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, another movie on my list is primarily about a director, but um, it just, the, the, you know, that, that self-importance that you want to make a serious, and so many of our great directors have gone down this road, especially right. comic directors mm-hmm. where they, you know, this is going to be my big, serious film. Right. Have you ever... I've had the experience. I worked with a director once. I, I won't mention the movie. Uh, but she really... And it wasn't... Al, everyone's going to think it's Allison Anderson. It's not Allison Anderson. It was another movie. But the director was like, every day she kept saying, you know, this is my raging bull. And I was like, <laughs> it's not. It's really, really not. And every scene we had to play as if... It were incredibly important. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's funny because, um, you know, like, because obviously, you know, with your experience with Scorsese, like, I, I doubt that those guys thought they were making Raging Bull mm. when they were. Yeah. Uh, it, it's always funny to see behind the curtain. Um, like Darren Aronofsky is one of my best friends and he I think people think that he uh, like sleeps upside down in a bat cave or something you know? <laughs> he's just like a nerdy guy you know that likes miso soup and stuff like there's no you know like yeah. he's not sitting around trying to you know conjure up demons and things he's a guy and there, there's there's something to that Joel McRae character where he's like he is like Narcissistic, narcissistically uh, 
you know, a, a, attached to this Lubitsch thing of like, yeah. you know, I got to be Lubitsch, but this other thing of like, I, I, I got to be more than I am. I have to be, I have to somehow be an important filmmaker, you know, which the quote unquote important filmmakers, I think, don't even consider themselves that mm. and would rather like write for SNL if they could, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it reminds me a little bit, you know, it's a dark film, but uh, Barton Fink is mm-hmm. in that same sort of, again, genre yeah. of, of mo- you know, movies about Hollywood. What's your, what is yours, Jeff? Well, we can hop, because I caught one, we can hop to Barton Fink. That's actually my number three. Your number three is Barton Fink. Yeah, so great timing. Um, it's my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Actually, no. My favorite Coen Brothers movie has to be Fargo, because it was the first Coen Brothers movie I saw, and I do think it's their masterpiece. But I love movies about writers. I had mm-hmm. Trumbo on this list, but I bumped it. Mm. But I think it's so interesting to see the experience of a writer rendered in film. And Barton Fink is such a strange movie. And the Coen brothers, I think... And similarly to Tarantino, can make these big weird choices, but keep it grounded in a way where a story matters so much and character matters so much. Yeah, and I think that performance in Barton Fink, there's just nothing really like it in the whole oeuvre of uh, the Coen Brothers movies. So I have to say, I love that film. It's a beautiful looking film. It's a little dark yeah. for me. Um, I enjoy it, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, because it's John Turturro and he can do no yeah. wrong, right? <laughs> you know, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, okay, well, I'm glad we got that one in there. Um, my number four was Sullivan's Travels. My Number three is The Bad and the Beautiful, Mm. Vincent Minnelli's lush, just a very lush story played over the top by Kirk Douglas. Again, it's megalomaniac, ruthless, but his redeeming quality is that he brought out the best in in, uh, other people. But he himself is a a monster, Mm. which is another classic Hollywood thing, like, you know. We're all yeah. mon- megalomaniac <laughs> monsters, but we make pretty good pictures. Pick pretty good yeah. pictures. Yeah, we can all be Kirk Douglas on our on our you know worst days. Yeah, uh, that, it's also it's got um um that was one of the first movies I remember seeing it on TV. I was always fascinated by movies where you saw directing, where you mm-hmm. saw like a director on a crane, and the crane like came in, mm. and I was like, right. what the hell is that? That looks so cool you mm. know and vincent yeah. minnelli sort of uh has that and then atlanta turner is in it sort of completely you know playing a uh like john barrow diane barrymore type person it's again it's weave it's woven in that that might be about diane barrymore who's john barrymore's daughter and then also um people some people say it was based on uh, david o selznick which mm. was another you know, but Kirk Douglas is uh, when he says to the sweet girl who loves him that he wants to be with the prostitute. And he goes, sometimes I like to be cheap. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh, Hollywood movies need over the top dialogue. Oh, yeah. Like that, yeah. You know, that's great. Yeah. Um, so that was my number three. What would you have your number three handy? What? My number three was uh, a star, the George Cooper uh, oh. star. Yeah, we're we're neck and neck. That's yeah. my number two. <laughs> we're getting. I, I love that movie so much. You can probably see the influence in uh, in um, uh, Sandy Wexler. Very we much so. Very much so. It's a love story. He builds her up, and uh, ve- very similar. A very always appealing theme. Yeah, and the the uh, and weirdly, uh, you know, he 
it's a it, it's a it, weirdly ahead of its time kind of stylized movie. I mean, the, that scene where they're in the car and they're, they're sort of getting to know you montage, and, it, and he does it in stills with uh, yeah. you know with ADR audio. Like he does some really kind of just like neat groovy tricks in it that for a mainstream Hollywood movie of the time feel kind of uh, feel feel really innovative and and you know sort of risky. Hmm. It's it, it's hard to imagine a theater, you know, like the Zigfield full of like squares watching yeah. that movie. He's almost got this like Robert Frank kind of like, you know, three minute section in it. And it's, uh, it's just, it's, that is really kind of bizarre and interesting to me, but those performances are I mean, oh my God. ridiculous. Uh, the, the long, ta- I love the long takes in it are, you know, of course when she, when she's, she comes into the club and he's she's singing, you know, the man that got away is insane. It's just beautiful him watching her. My particular favorite scene in the movie, again, I just find it very autobiographical. It looks almost like it's improv and again, as I, being on film sets, I'm sure the same thing has happened to you. When she she's talking to the head of the studio and she starts crying and her husband's an alcoholic mm. and then she has to come on and like have a smile on your face. <laughs> and I and I think that all of us who are in show business have that thing where we've just received the worst possible news about something. Yep. And then it's showtime yeah. and, and you got to go on. So I think it captures that, you know. Yeah, almost better than anything I've ever seen. And, and he, James Mason is a uh, just uh, as an actor, he's, he's almost impenetrable in terms of like there's just uh, there's just something weird going on in there, and you can never really peg what he's thinking or feeling, or if he's. Uh, it's uh, you know, in, in every performance he's ever given, there's yeah, there's an you know how they always say an actor you want to you want to have a secret, like he's got like six secrets, and I I can I, I never know. What, it's like kind of all subtext with him. Hmm. Um, I, 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 nev- I never really know what's going on with him until you find out what's going on with him, and, and, I, and especially in that one, I feel like there, you know, it's the, the slow build to who he really is, is is kind of fascinating to watch. Yeah, he anchors the movie. Plus, Jack Carson plays like just the biggest rat you ever. Mm-hmm. He's just so mean as the as the publicist, and uh, I, I, you know, that's another. Uh, Great character actor that I that I really like. Okay, yep. Stars Born. Uh, here we go. My number one. It's here we probably going to be the same. Sunset Boulevard comes. Sunset. In. Wait, was that was that my number three or my number two? My number two was Stars Born. Okay, because I feel like I have two left. Oh, okay. Do your two. Okay, my I, my my last two. Yeah. Are Staying in the Rain. Yeah. Almost made my Wait. list. And we, I think we all know, I mean, there's, that's obviously that's a well-trodden road, but yeah. my number one is, uh, James L. Brooks, I'll do anything. Hmm. Wow. Okay. You've, my number one, you have stumped me. Really? <laughs> have you not seen it? I have seen it. In fact, I even visited that set. I'll Did do you? anything. I'm going to rewatch it. And the only other Alan Covert is the only other guy I, that I know who's as passionate about this movie as I am. Uh, wow! But it is uh, it's 
there's something there's there, it touches on every part of this business in such a human in that James L. Brooks like accessible kind of heightened anxious uh, you know in, almost embarrassingly human way. Um, you know, it's basically about Nick Nolte's uh, uh, sort of ex-wife drops off their daughter at his um, front door, and he's this kind of struggling actor. He had, like, one great scene in Apocalypse Now, and now it's <laughs> like, 1990, and he's, you know, still trying to do it. And he's hugely talented, but the game is winning. Um, and he takes this job as an assistant for Albert Brooks, who plays the, you know, hotshot studio executive, who has this kind of tense, weird relationship with Julie Kavner, who's the, uh, um, you know, she's the woman that does the market research, you know, the cards at the screen. And he's a broken narcissist, but she sees something in him, so she's trying to fix him, but he can't be fixed. And in the meantime, the the kid gets discovered as a, you know, like a punky Brewster, Soleil Moonfry sort of, you know, hot actor. And now Nick Nolte's got to deal with the fact that his his kid is a hugely talented mini narcissist. Uh, Nick Nolte becomes involved with this executive who works for Albert Brooks. It's just all of it kind of comes together. And the two great scenes in it are one, not to ruin it, but where the woman that uh, 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 Jolie Richardson, the woman that uh, that Nick Nolte is seeing, right. She slept with him, and now she's in a meeting with Albert Brooks, her boss, and two other executives, deciding whether or not to cast Nick Nolte in this film they're producing. Right. Albert Brooks goes around the room and he goes, "Would you? Is he sexy? Would you sleep with him?" (laughs) And the one guy goes, "No," and the other guy goes, "No," and the other girl goes, "No," and then it gets to her, and she has slept with him, and she says, "No," (laughs) and it's that's this business she couldn't <laughs> she couldn't go you know what i mean she didn't have the yes. balls stand up and go not only would i i did and he'd be great in this movie and the um and the other great scene is uh where at the very end albert brooks says uh i, I talked to uh oliver stone it was platoon that, that nolte was in he goes i talked yeah. to oliver stone he, he remembers you from platoon he wants you to be in his new movie um you know it's 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 like a character. He, he's got like seven, eight lines. You know, it's not a big character, but and Nolte goes, best part in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you always have to say. Okay, yeah. you, well, we've seen you. We're going to get a lot of arguments about that. I'll do anything. <laughs> I'm going to re knocks out Sunset Boulevard, which is yours, which was mine, which and, is an amazing pick. And your number one is. I hope cheating with this one, but I said All About Eve, which is, it's a movie about entertainment. It's about New York. It's about, that's true, it is about Get out of the studio. Yeah, I know, that might not count, but I think in the way that it's addressing, similarly to the stars, the themes of Hollywood, and I think because it's probably my favorite movie, I'm just trying to shoehorn it into this category. (laughs) Um, But I, as someone who loves good writing, I do think that's one of the best screenplays that's ever been written. It's so funny, but also so tragic. Again, I love 
when a film can like really deeply explore themes of tragedy and sadness, but lift them with humor or with yeah. intrigue or really interesting genre elements. And I just, the performances and all about Eve, and again, thematically, the way it's addressing ageism and you know the the tragedy of a lost career which i think is so prescient in hollywood films i just i think i'm shoehorning it in there but it is because it's one of my favorite movies i'm gonna say it's also my favorite hollywood movie well if you like that then you like the star you i know like I'm excited Davis. To watch it. yeah because you know after she did all about eve it was sort of like every movie was a, a, a degradation a, you know went one degree <laughs> down from margot channing <laughs> yeah and the star is like the bottom of the barrel, you know, sort of, again, the bottom of the barrel. I like the star. It's, yeah. You know, and there's somebody we didn't we we didn't get to. The Last Tycoon, Day for Night, Barefoot Contessa, The Carpetbaggers. Mm. In a Lonely Place. Uh, in a I Lonely Place. With. Yeah. For Your Consideration. Stuntman. Almost put Modern Romance, too, on there. Ooh, yeah. Just yeah. a great, you know, we should just do a show devoted to oh, Albert yeah. Brooks. Who I'm, really? And then have some editors on. That's a great idea. We probably yeah. will. I love that. We talk to that. Okay, Paul. Uh, well, this has been fantastic. Yeah. What are you going to say? Did I interrupt you? What? No, I was saying thank you. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. It's just been an honor. And when you finally come out in, uh, in L.A., please come by the studio and we can do this again and talk about yeah, other things. Yeah. Yes, it's been, this has been really great, and you know, Ileana, I feel like uh, you're uh, you're a very important force in um, you know in this world we're in. Oh, and, thank uh, you. Trying to you know in, in preserving the the history of it and the work that you're doing and the work that you have done, and you're very uh, kind and benevolent and uh, you know um, uh, irre- ir- necessary necessarily irreverent force in uh, in <laughs> movies show business and all of it. Oh, thank you. Plus, I'm at the age, I I, I don't really care anymore, so telling all the stories, who is nice (laughs) to me, and who is mean, and you know, all, all the yeah. good audition stories, bad audition stories. Who's yeah. who snubbed me? You know, all, all it's it's all going to come it, out one uh, story at a time. Exactly. And we didn't even get to talk about Queen. What part of Queens are you from? Because I spent a lot. I grew up uh, like 168th Horace Harding. Uh, it's I guess it's they call it Fresh Meadows. Uh huh. They were nothing is fresh, and there are no meadows. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I went to Francis Lewis High School. Oh my God! Yes, my my grandparents live right near Francis Lewis Boulevard. I, I think my yeah. I think my uncle went there. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's where uh, that's that's where I um, you know. Wait, was their mascot the bulldog? No, what were I was so okay. first of all, like our we were so rinky dink in terms of our yeah. teams because everybody was. You know, into like graffiti and drugs and things, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think our mas- our mascot was like a spray paint. A can. spray paint. <laughs> okay, that's a much better a joke. <laughs> Did you go to Gert's department store? That's where my grandparent. That's where my grandma. No, lived. we used to go. My mother used to take us to the Lower East Side. Oh, to like Canal Street. That was too far for my but, grandmother. <laughs> but that's like where the deals were. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. I was- Going into the back of some dusty store with some, you know, Bernie Sanders looking guys selling a sock. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, my goodness. All right, Paul. Well, thank you so much. Uh, everybody should uh, take a look at uh, some of the so many of the movies we've recommended. And, uh, you know, Adam Sandler, 100 uh, percent fresh, which is on right now. It's just a fantastic uh, comedy special with a lot of music. And I'm a sucker for music, of course, anything with funny songs and mm. that that um, the tribute to Chris Farley at the end, of course, incredibly touching. Yeah, me, me and Adam and a guy named Dan Bula wrote that. Um, and Dan Bula wrote a lot of that music. Uh, and he's writing on SNL now. Um, and he also did a lot of work on Sandy Wexler. And he's a, he's a, I should mention him, he's a great comedy writer. Um, yeah, and, the, and the, the two of us sat there with Adam and, and got all those Farley stories and put that song together. Mm. And that was like a huge oh. uh, honor to be a part of that. It was very, very, like, just kind of indescribable. Oh, well, thanks. So thanks so much for being part of our first show. Yes, I'm, I, I feel honored, privileged, and it's a lot of fun. Oh, well, thanks, Paul. All right, we'll talk talk to you soon. Everyone, thanks for uh, a great show. Thank you, Jeff. It's my pleasure, and, Anna. Uh, this is, uh, I had so much fun producing you for years that it's like so fun for me to be on the panel. He produced me. Yes. <laughs> I know, it does sound funny. when I, I was, you know, in the booth watching as a fan, and here I am on the panel with you. So and it's, laughing. We'll be, yes. right, we'll be talking. We'll, afterwards, we'll be, we'll be uh, talking, continuing the talk. And Absolutely. If everybody out there is screaming that we didn't get to their favorite movie, just hit me up on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, any of our wonderful uh, options. That Absolutely. We have and you can comment down below in this video. We had a lot of people in the chat today making amazing recommendations. So I want to know that I see you guys. A lot of amazing, a lot of amazing. Oh, adaptation! That's a great one. Talking Charlie Kaufman. There's so many films. So just let us know down in the comments below. Yes. And um, Ileana, of course, we're back. This is the film scene with Ileana Douglas. This is the film scene with Ileana Douglas as we end our show and say everyone's life is like a movie with a beginning, a middle, and the end. This is the end of our show for today. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals. So what's yours? Uh, I struggled with Model Shop too. I, it was definitely on my. Uh, um, it was it was it was on and off the list for a while. <laughs> uh, my number, the player is number ten. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. That opening it, shot. It, it, the reason why it's why it's so far down on the list, I think, is because there's it's it, it's an obvious uh, choice, right? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, but uh, but to to me, it's I, I, people always describe it as like, you know, it's the it's it, that's the real dirt on what Hollywood is like. It's not, but it's it's a it's almost like a fantasy. It's almost like porn for people who work in Hollywood. Mm, you know, right? It's what they wish they were doing. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, the the tropes of of the whodunit genre kind of find their way into the movie, and uh, everybody's dressed in you know these sort of double breasted Armani suits from that era. And it's there, there's a, there's kind of like a, a prom aspect to it for uh, 
you know, for, for Hollywood people. And I, I, I like the artifice of that. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like a, like a Brian De Palma esque kind of a thing, um, which I, I kind of dig. And lo- uh, lo- lots of great cameos, which is another Hollywood movie trope, you know. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, the Buck Henry pitching um, Brad Pitt, <laughs> who is one of the funniest six seconds in a movie. I've yeah, it's like it's it's just you know, and, and that's just sort of a one-off bit. Visit Trio in it. There's just a lot, a lot of great little pieces to it. Uh, Lyle Lovett, you know. Lyle Lovett, awesome. Where's Lyle yeah. Lovett? Yeah, it's been a minute. I'm going to do a top ten about where, and then I'm just fill in the blank. Where's X? <laughs> I love that. That's why I love it these days. That's great. All right, Jeff, what's your ten? You know, I actually only made five. But, oh, okay. So I will, maybe you, I can you'll do... You'll jump in at five? I'll jump in at five, yeah. All right, okay. I want to let the, uh, the scholars hop in, and then I'll hop in as well. Okay, this was my on the list, off the list, on the list, off the list, but I put it on mm-hmm. there, and what it what it knocked off was a movie that I also really love, which is The Big Knife. Mm-hmm. I knocked that one off. That's a black and white movie. <laughs> Yeah, Clifford Odets, Jack Palance. Yeah, I saw it on Broadway. My buddy Bobby did it. Bobby Cannavale did it on Broadway. Oh, he did. And it was, um, it was bananas. I mean, it was just fantastic. It didn't run for that long, uh, but it was, it was a, the, the the play was was really incredible. Jack Palance, right in the movie. Yeah, Jack Palance. It's just and, and it's just brutal. And again, it's got all these, you know, Rod Steiger. It's it's yeah. the, it's the it's the greatest Rod Steiger over the top performance mm. of all time. And well, maybe the loved one, I would <laughs> I would, I would pick the loved one might 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 at least match it. <laughs> the, uh, but I took it off and I replaced it with "Don't Get Mad at Me, La La Land." But you can we can all argue about it. We can all really? argue about it. I put it on there. It was again. I had it on. I had it off. I just think uh, as a testament for two reasons. I think the opening Mm. scene Mm. is incredible and staged in an incredible way. I love the colors. He was a big fan of Jacques Demy and the, you know, umbrellas of Sherberg and the the colors of that. And I think that um, I actually think it did deserve to win an Oscar. I'm, I'm going with the controversy. It's fair. Wow. It's your I th- show. <laughs> I think there was something, something fishy happened that year with Warren Beatty. and Because uh, it, it seemed odd that Moonlight won the best picture. But, uh, but I, so I put La La Land on. Because so there's so many great scenes of L.A. and, the, you know. And it is cool. That. that movie's very special in the way that it is a modern film. Like, it definitely has yeah. the DNA of a movie that gets made now but it's right. such an affectionate look at how classic hollywood films were made even you know the titling they use after that first sequence right plays to old films so it is in the same way that tarantino's once upon a time i think is such an impassioned love letter to the city this is damien chazelle's version of that in the same way yeah i also think that um the audition scene is one of the great you know scenes i really i like that and then it's got the crazy cameos with like john legend mm. Uh, I, I, you know, things like that. I was like the cra- crazy cameo in the in, that was yeah. the that was the weak part of the movie. That band didn't love it. <laughs> that he was in. What's your number nine? 
my number nine is uh, Hal Needham's Hooper. Oh, yes. A couple people on uh, Twitter mentioned that one. Yeah, about Stuntman. Yeah, Hooper's great. Hooper is, uh, yes, Hal Needham directed it. Hal Needham, the, you know, probably greatest stuntman that ever lived. I think he broke something like, I, I don't know how many bones we have in our body, but I think he broke all of them. Um, and, you know, it's like a love letter to that contingent of what we do. I mean, you've yeah. worked on your whole life. Like, you know, there, there's, that's a community. Yeah. In, in system that, that, you know, and you either, you, you either get in and fraternize or, they don't like you you're not getting in and you know they're like they're sort of the cowboys cowboy female cowboys whatever you call it you know mm-hmm. they, they are the 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 of of the craft and that movie J. michael vincent plays like the young uh you know scientific kind of let's do these stunts uh you know where we can minimize the risk to burt reynolds kind of you know, like like passionate, and the whole thing is the risk and the glory of, you know, going out and just leaping without looking, and uh, you know, it it becomes this sort of battle between them. To uh, it, it's a, a little bit in the sen- in the sense of, uh, of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, the old guard being the yeah. new guard, and then they find kind of a happy middle, um, and uh, and then there's that great scene with the uh, like the rocket power of Trans Am, where Jan Michael Vincent is is driving it, and Burt Reynolds is riding shotgun, and kind of it gets to that moment where they've got to jump that cliff, and Jan Michael Vincent is like, "There's no safe way to do this," and Burt Reynolds says, "Well, that's the deal, baby. You got to just punch it and go," <laughs> which is a great metaphor for coming to Hollywood. You no, know, you gotta you gotta punch it and go sometimes. You know? Oh man, you're telling me. The uh, the uh, I love that's another sort of Hollywood movie thing is when they're on set. Now, whenever usually they're in a movie, they usually there's usually Roman centurions that have to go by. Is that the go to sword and sandals? Right. It's all you need. Or two showgirls or aliens. I think. Oh, yeah. Aliens. They use a lot. Ever seen a, a, a movie about centurions that wasn't like entirely made in a computer? <laughs> That's true. So, now you get a guy walking by, and he's like, "I promise, this is a hundred centurions." <laughs> it's a green tennis ball. Uh, okay, my number eight is Hollywood Land. I wanted to. I, I brought this up because I thought it was a kind of an undiscovered classic, mm. really about the underbelly. Uh, of Hollywood and this Hollywood fixer named Eddie Mannix, and um, Adrian Brody. Yeah, yes, Adrian Brody investigating the murder of George Reeves, and this was sort of a comeback movie for Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. Well, this is post Gigli, right? So he yeah. needed a uh, he needed an and indie. I really like Ben Affleck in this movie. It's funny, candidly, he can be hit or miss for me. I sometimes prefer him behind the camera as to him in front of the camera, but yeah. I really do like him in this role, and I think he's very well cast for it mm-hmm. um, to play George Reeves. I, yeah, I think he's he was it was sort of perfect timing for for him. Another thing in Hollywood movies, you know, the rise and fall is always like a good metaphor in mm. Hollywood in Hollywood films. And I don't know if you know about Eddie Mannix, but he was this Hollywood fixer and I think 
there's all sorts of unsolved murders and sham marriages and <laughs> there are like big things swirl around him. There was like wow. he forced uh, Van Johnson to marry his best friend, and Oof. you know, I mean, like all, all you know, like I have good news for you, Van. You're marrying tomorrow. Here's the woman you're marrying. You know, I mean, they, we talk about the glory days of Hollywood, but there are some things that seem like they were pretty scary, and that movie reflects it. Yeah. Also, if you name your kid Eddie Mannix, like, you're not getting a doctor. You know what I mean? <laughs> Fair. Like, buy him a fedora and an overcoat. <laughs> oh, and another thing, another thing about Eddie Mannix is the movie Hail Caesar mm. is, a, mm-hmm. is a comic retelling of the Eddie Mannix oh, wow. uh, story. Yeah, so it's sort of, I got a twofer in there. Absolutely. Without really, so what, what is, let's hear your number eight. Uh, my number eight is Star Eighty. Really? Okay, Star. That is talk about dark. That is it's like a dark one, but I feel like it's and that's the sort of the dark one I chose. Except for maybe there's one more, two more. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's bossy. Yeah. So I feel like it's coming from the sauce, so, sauce from the source. From yeah. The sauce, <laughs> from the sauce. Yes. You know, it's it's there's a sense of I know what I'm talking about in that one, and also you know the the, uh, the it, it's kind of the story of what happens when all when toxic people or mentally ill people or people who are ill-equipped for the pressure cooker arrive in that town, yes, and you know and get wrapped up in the wrong way. You know, mm. and, and and the sort of desperation, desperation and impatience, and uh, you know, wrongheaded goals, and and then how that uh, can manifest itself in uh, in some dark, dark stuff. But the Playboy Mansion of it all, and the Bogdanovich of it all, I, I feel like uh, you're right. It's a Hollywood story. That's a classic. Um, yeah, a modern. And I think that everyone in Hollywood. I don't know if you feel this way, Paul, but I, I don't feel this way now. But Back in the nineties, a couple times, like he'd be at a party and would be like, "Ooh, I don't. Uh, this is not good." Mm. <laughs> Usually, it was up in the hills. It, like you'd find yourself late at night. Up, we didn't have Uber then, right. but right. you'd think like, "Ooh, it's." Uh, I think I want to leave. You know, it's not a. There is a seamy. Yeah. Hollywood at night is a little scary for me. LA's so it's spread out. Dick. It's not like it's not like New York. Yeah. You just go and just you know get out of there and you know right blocks and suddenly you know you're in a different neighborhood you are stuck wherever you are uh and it could be terrifying yeah i i think i think so yeah yeah uh, well now that makes me really want to re-see that that film except the ending is it's really but yeah i think it's worth a rewatch. the ending is so dark okay speaking of dark films my number seven la confidential mm. uh i picked uh, just again, the locations of Los Angeles, uh, the performance of uh, Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce, like right out of Australia. And uh, I just thought it was an incredible movie. Also, just the look of the film. I think it captured, you know, from the mid century modern houses down in Silver Lake to the bungalows. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. 
And again, it's that cross section of Hollywood and corruption, you know, when things that happen that cross over with the with the police. And L.A. was really, again, back in the day, you know, uh, kind of a scary place. At, yeah. At, at, yeah. You know, at night. So I don't know if you Danny seen- DeVito is one of my favorite actors and directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his performance in that movie is one of his best. Yes, I think so. Um, and also, again, with the, you know, with L.A., with the Confidential Magazine and mm-hmm. how influential that was. And they, again, they ruined people's careers. They ruined Tab Hunter's mm-hmm. career. Right. Completely. They destroyed, just literally destroyed his career. They tried to destroy Maureen O'Hara's career, and she sued them. The reason that movie works so well, too, is because it works as a genre film as well as a film about Hollywood. It's a great thriller no matter where it's set. You know, yeah. so it's you have the DNA of a really well-made movie and the Hollywood components complement the tone in the story so well. I like the tone of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the whole t- tone, the whole look of the film. Kim Basinger is in the oh, movie. Yeah. Uh, it, she, it was perfect. That that big fight scene down in the in the in the jail uh, in the holding cell is yeah still, I mean that horrifying scene it's unbelievable yeah it was scary when you find out the farmer from Babe <laughs> like the bad guy <laughs> that freaked me out but it's like a history of Hollywood that's what I you know kind of yeah that was my dark pick so yours was uh, LA okay number six. This, I was, I felt bad. This should have been almost higher on the list, but it's so good. Ed Wood. Mm. I picked Ed Wood. That's uh, my number six, too. It is? Oh, look at yeah. that. Simpatico. Yeah. It's definitely one of yeah, Tim yeah. Burton's best movies. I personally, just for personal reasons, Big Fish is my favorite Tim Burton movie. And I know uh-huh. that's, movie gets mixed reviews, but Ed Wood, if we're talking about Damien Chazelle loving Hollywood through La La Land, and we're talking about Tarantino loving Hollywood through Once Upon a Time, this is Tim Burton's just everything about it is just such a passionate plea as to why filmmaking is such a beautiful art form. Right. You and know? Then they, I think Johnny Depp just gives an inspired, wacky performance. I, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I think when he started... I think people really treated him like the artist that he is. And then I think when the movie star sort of part of his life, the, mm-hmm. the pirate part uh, started to happen, <laughs> I think people kind of lost sight of that. And that now his personal life is sort of the thing and he looks very strange and that happens yeah. to people. But uh, the, the that guy is like a ballet dancer. I mean, he's the Baryshnikov of, of you know, uh, performing on screen that performance is like uh, it's so elegant and strange and subtle but you know it's in a broad context i don't know and then martin landau hasn't that's the greatest thing he's ever done yeah martin landau's bella lugosi is uh i mean again that's one of those movies too certain hollywood movies that where i have been that person where it's late at night and the director you're doing something for like a dollar 98 they they want you to they want you to fight with the octopus and you just are like i'm gonna have to get in my car and go home (laughs) and go back to my trailer and you know like you you go to acting school and you have all these dreams and you you want to do important movies and then you know you find yourself like going uh i think they're blowing they have a leaf blower in my face and i'm supposed to be pretending i'm on a motorboat uh okay 
And so it, when, when yeah. he asks, when, when Ed Wood asks uh, Bella Lugosi, when he says, uh, what do you drink it, Bella? And Bella goes, formaldehyde. Yeah, it just is. Again, it's uh, it's a movie that it's made by clearly by people who love movies. And one of the screenwriters is one of our good friends here, uh, Larry Karaszewski, yep. who is making an, a movie about Hollywood uh, Dolomite with uh, Ed Mur- with uh, Eddie Murphy. So it's gonna be good. Yeah, that's gonna be another Hollywood movie that w- we could talk about. Plus, it's got Bill Murray in it. Which also, friend of the show, Mitch Glazer, was on. So if you want yes. some good Bill Murray stories, definitely check out our Mitch Glazer episode. It's oh, a great yeah. One. That would be a, yeah, that would be a good one. Okay, my so Jeff, let's hear your number five. All right, so I'm actually going to swap out my number five and bump it up because I realized wow. during this, I okay. don't know if it counts, but my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie is Boogie Nights. And that is kind of about Hollywood, right? Are we going to count that as an industry movie? It's about the valley. Yeah, it is about the valley. You, um, could, you, could, say, you could say it's a... Uh, a Hollywood movie. It's a Hollywood movie. If we're talking about the underbelly of Hollywood, that's how yeah. I can justify it. But Paul Thomas Anderson, I have a complicated relationship with. Some of his movies, I think, are masterpieces. Some of them I kind of struggle with. But I think Boogie Nights, to me, is the perfect distillation of what makes Paul Thomas Anderson great. It's a huge ensemble, right? He's one of the few directors who can really master an ensemble. Right. But I think each character has paid so much attention in that movie. No one expected Mark Wahlberg to turn in the performance he did for that film. And Boogie Nights somehow manages to have such a sense of fun and joy, but also be so tragic at the same time. I think it's really, really hard to do that, and that experience to me can sometimes feel like exactly what L.A. is. So, Well, it also has Burt Reynolds in it, which, again, classic movies about all Hollywood mm-hmm. always have, like, the old endearing movie, you know, Martin Landau and Ed Wood, <laughs> Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights, you yeah. know. There are, there are certain things, we want that comeback, we want that them to get their Academy Award, although it didn't happen with Reynolds did not. I, I think that he, 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 you know, he definitely could have gotten this Academy Award. I think from Paul's perspective, like he didn't really participate in that process. You know what I mean? I think yeah. some, something happened between wrapping that movie and its release, and he, where he just kind of he decided didn't... he was sort of disavowing it. Right. He thought it was like the worst. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the opposite. Of the instincts that he should have had, but yeah, I always, I, I always have the opposite. I think something is going to be amazing, and then I see it, and I go, "That is not the movie I made. What happened?" Yeah. I thought the cover was going to be a hit. I was like, you know, let's go. And then Peter Travers called it a toxic smear of curdled whimsy. And I went, oh okay. Peter, we can disagree. <laughs> now, do you ever see? Now, to me, as John Milius once said to me, "No grudge is too small." Uh, mm-hmm. When you run into these people, now I I know it. I know the name of every person who's ever said anything negative about me. <laughs> yeah, in, I have a list in print, Peter Bart. So, uh, who is your person? Did you go? Travers is is one of them. I I've never run into the guy. I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. I wish him no, all No, probably work. not. He's probably not. <laughs> yeah. But, like, as a human man, I, I, I wish no harm on him. I'm not Vincent Gallo. You know, I'm like, I, I, <laughs> I hope he lives a long and happy life. But, like, whenever I see him doing that, like, thing, pop, whatever that, he has a popcorn show or something where he's like, movies, and you're so great, Dustin Hoffman. And, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, you know, you're like a glorified. He's just, there's a, uh, he, he's, uh, 
he's not a proper critic. And to take us, we were a small movie. We were an $8 million movie independent yeah. made in New York. And to take that movie and write a one sentence review of it where there's, where all the adjectives could like describe vomit. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, got, it, it's, it's just so, um, who are you? What have you ever done? Like you've never taken a swing. You've never been like, uh, Hooper and Ski, you know, uh, uh, flying off that cliff, not knowing if you were going to reach the other side. Uh, you know, just leave, leave us alone, man. Like, don't, it, you don't want to help us, fine, but don't hurt us. Well, you know, what's interesting about the movie is that what I was thinking is that if the Coen brothers had directed it, they would have called it a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. As I was watching the movie, I thought, this is kind of like a Coen brothers film. It's got Thank that. You. you know, what I told Tom McCarthy was, I was like, dude, if we would have just made this movie in French, we would <laughs> have won every, we would have won best foreign film. I agree. Like, I agree. It, I, I think there was, uh, well, there's always, you, you know, it's the, does that is this just my own thing? But does Adam Sandler have a different degree of performance when he's acting in other films than when he's acting in his own films? Yeah, that it's a very different that, thing. That's why you know I met him because we we cast him in that movie, so he oh. showed up actor. So he wasn't a producer. He wasn't right. a writer. He he completely relinquished all control. Yeah. Uh, if I came up to him with a note, he didn't really, you know, it wasn't like he was considering it. He just kind of took it because I right. was the writer on the movie. Um, and, uh, you, you know, so he really, when he's working with like with us on that or PTA or the softies or whoever, you know, he really just sort of shows up as, you know, he's a movie star. There's a lot going on with that, but mm-hmm. he, but he, He's there to he's there to perform and and, no, and nothing else, you know what I mean. So it's a, it's it's an interesting uh, color that he has, you know, when he's doing stuff like that. Well, it's interesting if people are going to watch it. What I might do is watch the special because there's a lot mm. of insights about uh, that I learned about Adam and his relationship with his own father. Mm-hmm. And that come out very much in the cobbler, and uh, I thought it was very move. That was for me was the most moving part of the film mm. was that storyline, and um, and it was really sad and it was really touching. And then he and Dustin Hoffman worked in another film together, also, right? Yeah, the, the Noah Noah Baumbach's movie. Yeah, uh, the Meyerowitz stories. We when we were doing that scene um, in the shoe basement where he has that sort of. Uh, you know, reconciliation moment with with his father. We we went to lunch and realized we hadn't gotten it. And so after lunch, we came back and we sort of re like jiggered where we were going to put the camera and stuff. And uh-huh. then Dustin on when we were on Adam, Dustin just started like going at Adam with all of this sort of you know uh, having having a lot of insight about Adam's relationship with his father. And just kept feeding Adam all this really <laughs> potent stuff. Like, yeah. he's here. He's here with us. You know, I know you miss him. It's not your fault. Da, 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 all this stuff, wow. and that, and that's what got Adam to really give give us that authentic and and, and sort of deep stuff that he was doing. And then, you know, we turned around on Dustin, and he just said the lines. But it, you know, that was intense. Mm. Yeah, the, the the movie has an undercurrent that you can feel of of profound sadness. Um, 
that I, I found really, uh, you know, really interesting. And Steve Buscemi is, he can do no, I mean, he and John Turturro in my book. Mm. I don't understand how you become those guys. I mean, you've worked with Buscemi, right? I've worked with both. He was, yeah, I've worked with Steve uh, in a couple films and uh, John in a couple films, and they're flawless. They are. The technical proficiency. I know. With like, they're like Van Morrison. Right? <laughs> they're right on the right on the beat. Yeah. When on when they when it's when it's time to get off the beat, they're behind it. If, if you know what I mean, whatever yeah. it is, there's it's a combination of like unexpected. Like complete freedom with like a total technical proficiency and and, and intense craft. I don't, I don't know. It's just and they work like dogs and it's baffling. They're yeah. Both, and I I work with Totoro for a day, but but Buscemi I know, and he's just an incredible, incredible guy. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's it, he's great in the in the in the film. So uh, I I think more people should should see that film. I'd be curious to to have yeah, uh, Netflix. Um, and it, and it, you know, it, once it got to Netflix, it started to sort of globally started to catch on, and people started to see it. Um, Totoro told me that the only man he ever met that he thought might be able to kill him with his bare hands was Woody Allen. <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> funny oh my god uh okay i'm getting to my number five uh this is a sort of obscure movie it's a little out there again it's called the star with betty davis um mm-hmm. the reason i picked this movie again it, it, it's kind of it's got some elements of it that are campy at one point she goes on an alcoholic drive through hollywood with her mm-hmm. academy award and and runs and dr- drives drunk over Mitzi Gaynor's lawn. I mean, so it's got certain things that are over the top. But I thought that certain the idea because I've seen it so many times, you know, in, in Hollywood, the idea, you know, when an actress gets to a certain age, and how making that bridge to character parts. And it's impossible for. And there's a scene that is so poignant where she finally gets an audition, and she's she try she goes in the dress she goes to the dressing room and she wipes off all the hag makeup and she fixes up her hair Mom. and she she's supposed to be like a scullery maid and instead she right. comes back and she's doing Betty Davis cabin in the cotton and you know mm. and uh, and it's and and then she see and you'd think okay that's enough. But she sees herself, which is one of these things. She's also in Once Upon a Time in America, actress watching herself on screen. Betty Davis watches herself as this character on screen and breaks down crying and runs out. And I think that all of us who are in show business have had that moment. Where yeah. you, you go, you know what? I don't know if it's better lighting or something needs to happen. You know, <laughs> but, but that's my yeah. movie. The star. 